Lord, your word is a lantern to our feet and a light to our path. Send out your light and your truth that they may lead us and bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your law. Amen. Please be seated. Caleb told me that um, one of the things deacons do is preach occasionally, and I warned him to be careful what he asked for. <laughs> he didn't listen, so here I am, proud to be here and speak for a little bit on this gospel passage. Many years ago, when our two daughters were much younger and were at home, we had a fairly regular schedule of reading some good books to them in the evening. I remember reading especially the Chronicles of Narnia to them, and The Yearling. Do you remember The Yearling? Uh, great book. Uh, I burst into tears when we finished that. The book was just so moving uh, about a young boy coming of age and maturing. We also read Bible stories. I remember one evening, I'm certain it was on Halloween, or very near Halloween, when I commented that there were some scary stories in the Bible. There's no scary stories in the Bible, Amanda protested. And I said, I don't know about that. And I mentioned the account of Saul and the Witch of Endor and Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. There are many frightening things in Scripture, including witches trying to contact the dead, visions of skeletons rattling back to life, angelic battles, prophecies of end times and judgment, and the dead actually coming back to life. The depths of sin into which God's people routinely fall into is, I think, very frightening. And we also have passages such as the Gospel reading today that recount one of Jesus' many encounters with demons. Certainly, if we had been there, it would have been scary. This passage is sometimes called the healing of the Gadarene or Gerasene demoniac. The same account is given in um, all three synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew 8, Mark 5, and here in Luke 8. It is not in John's gospel. If you compare all three of the parallel passages, you can get a few more details. Matthew indicates, for example, there were two demoniacs who came out. Mark and Luke mention only one. So if there was two, there was one. Apparently, one was the one that was sort of front and center. The location of this event uh, was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably the town of Gergesa, which is now called Kersey. There's some debate about uh, the name, um, which was a coastal town uh, in this country. It is said that a 5th century church or monastery has been excavated there and that this is thought to be the traditional location of where Jesus cast out the demons. Ray and Carol Trzynski was telling me how they had visited that area and had seen the place and seen the high cliff. And they were told that uh, the disciples, I guess this is part of the tradition, they wouldn't get out of the boat uh, because it was known to be um, sort of a, a Gentile land or demon-possessed land. So there was some other things they saw when they, they visited the country. There are several aspects of this story I would like us to contemplate. First of all is some context. This event occurs immediately after Jesus rebukes the wind and the raging sea and calms the storm. So he demonstrates his sovereign power over nature. Then he casts out the demons, demonstrating his power over spirit beings. After this, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. So he has power over illness and disease. Finally, Jesus raised from the dead the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. He has power over death itself. So Jesus is on a roll in these passages here. Second, I think it would be important today, in this day and age, to recognize and even affirm that we believe in the reality of demons. In an often cited quote, C.S. Lewis, in his preface to 
the screw tape letters, which I'll tell you more about in a moment, he wrote this about what we should think of demons. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an, un an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think he's probably right. We have to agree. Any preoccupation with them would seem to indicate less attention to and trust in the Lord. But we should not ignore them. Our secular age dismisses demons and angels as primitive and medieval superstition. The science, we are assured, has explained natural disasters, diseases, and mental illnesses without recourse to devils. Well, science has explained many things, but not all things, not even close. I was once ridiculed by a professor in a class at FSU. Uh, the class was called Issues in Science and Religion, and somehow de uh, angels came up. And I said, well, I happen to believe in angels. And uh, he got on me about it, and uh, it really did not disturb me. Uh, but several of my classmates thought the incident was so over the top that they went to the professor privately and told him so. And the next class, the professor gave me what I think was a sincere apology for his comments. It was a little surprising, but I actually liked the professor very much. We had many conversations. But my point is, it didn't amount to anything, but it showed what they really think of what you think. When we consider some of the atrocities that are committed today and in the past, some of the cruel and unspeakable destructive behavior that enslaves many people, we know of it, right? Or events in our own lives that severely threaten us, it's not really difficult at all to sense the influence of demonic forces and feel the spiritual warfare. I think the closer we get to the front lines of the conflict, the more we see and smell the battle. Regarding the reality of the spirit world, I'd like to tell you just a little bit more about C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. How many have heard of it? Okay, several. Good. First published in 1942, Lewis dedicated this book to his close friend and fellow inkling, J.R.R. Tolkien. Lewis was an Oxford and Cambridge scholar, a convert to Christianity, an Anglican, just saying, uh, and very popular Christian apologist of a generation or two ago. He was very important in my life in the college years, reading his books. And many will tell you the same thing. They kind of fortified us to uh, withstand all the uh, attacks, you might say, you got in the secular academy. But except for the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a beautiful Christian fantasy, uh, Lewis seems to be less known uh, by later generations, I suppose. The Screwtape Letters is portrayed as a collection of personal letters written by Screwtape, a senior demon and mid-level bureaucrat in hell's corporate structure, the lowerarchy. Uh, Screwtape is writing letters to Wormwood, a young novice apprentice demon and Screwtape's nephew, who is being instructed in the techniques and craft of tempting humans to sin for the purpose of their ultimate damnation, which is portrayed as something like a delicacy, which demons especially relish. Besides Screwtape and Wormwood, other demons mentioned in the book are Slumtrippet, Toadpipe, Glubose, and Slubglob. So the letters are very entertaining. But and make no mistake, Lewis believed very much in the reality of demons. He said so many times. Each letter of screw tape to Wormwood is deeply instructive, describing the nature and psychology of all kinds of temptation. So I recommend it. Demons are mentioned throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament, where they are frequently, I count about 20 times at least, referred to as unclean spirits. Demons are mentioned directly in the Old Testament only in a few verses. In Leviticus 17, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. 
In Deuteronomy 32, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. Second Chronicles 11, he appointed for himself priests for the high places for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. And interestingly, in Psalms 106, they even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. It's almost universally agreed that demons are fallen angels who were confederate with the former arch-cherub Lucifer in a prehistoric rebellion against God and his unfallen angels. If you think this sounds fantastic, I invite you to consider all the passages in Scripture that talk about it. Uh, the spirit world and spiritual warfare is everywhere in the Scripture. Satan's fall and angelic rebellion are described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and is alluded to elsewhere, Luke 10, Revelation 12, Jude 6. The angelic rebellion was certainly history by Genesis 3, because what happened in Genesis 3? Satan shows up in the garden. King David was given a glimpse of the spirit world when he saw a destroying angel in 2 Samuel. Elijah's servant was permitted to see horses and chariots of fire in a wonderful passage in 2 Kings 6. He was able to see the angelic world. Daniel speaks explicitly of angelic warfare in Daniel 10, and angels delivered Daniel in the lion's den. Remember that after Jesus' 40 days of fasting and temptation, he was ministered to by angels. And at Jesus' betrayal, remember when Peter drew the sword and he cut off the ear of one of the servants of the, of the high priest, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide with me with more than 12 legions of angels? And in Acts 5 and 12, Peter is twice released from prison by an angel. There's just way too much in Scripture about angels and demons to ignore. They make many appearances and are said to be very much part of human affairs. They are creatures created beings. Angels are not childish, childish sentimental inventions of our wishful thinking, and demons cannot be dismissed as primitive, superstitious, or mythical explanations of mental illness or certain diseases. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make a distinction as well between demon-related disease and oppression or possession and other forms of illness, although they are sometimes associated. Certainly, severe epilepsy, for example, does not require demon possession, but demon possession may result in something very much like epilepsy or other maladies. And it wasn't epilepsy that drove the swine over the cliff. There are many passages that say this. I'll give you a couple. Matthew 4, uh, 24, they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew 10, and when he had called the 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And in Mark 6, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, there are some frightening symptoms of demon possession. The passage here speaks of the man for a long time, he wore no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So he's living naked among the tombs. Mark 5, in the parallel passage, says, No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. 
In Matthew 8, same passage says he was so fierce no one could pass that way. There's other examples. Jesus uh, heals a demon-possessed child with a mute spirit in Mark 9 and related passages. These say that the spirit sees the child. It cries out. It convulses him, bruises him, throws him to the ground, causes him to wallow on the ground, gnash his teeth, foam at the mouth, and become rigid. It sometimes made him fall into the fire and into the water. Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. The spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out, and he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. There's a passage in Acts 19. I guess I won't go there right now, but this is the one where um, there are certain Jewish preachers, they were trying to mock or imitate Paul, and they tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus that Paul teaches. And do you remember what happened? A demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And they pounce upon this guy and beat him up. Christians sometimes wonder whether they can be possessed or oppressed or otherwise affected by demons. I'm sure it's impossible to know all the ways demons may work, nor how angels work on our behalf. Surely a spirit-filled believer cannot be truly possessed as were these demoniacs. But the point I want to make is that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We must always be vigilant and not be timid about praying against strongholds or whatever evil influence may be at work. Uh, in a given situation. Paul warns us to be weary of Satan. We are not ignorant of his devices, he says. In the spiritual warfare, Matthew 16, remember when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Who did he say that to? Peter. And this was immediately after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. Right after that, he says, get behind me, Satan. After Peter says, you don't have to go to the cross and do all those things. So Satan was right on the spot. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He had a great vision, and this was to humble him. In 2 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in, latter, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. In Ephesians 6, the spiritual warfare, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And Romans 8, the good news, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We're on the winning side. What strikes me frequently in this passage, every time I've come across it, um, is the reaction of everybody to what happened. Um, consider the reaction of the demons to Jesus. When they saw him, they cried out, fell before him, and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Never mind, he had been tormenting this poor man for who knows how long, and they didn't want to be tormented. We do not know how many demons were in this man. A legion in the Roman army is said to be between 4,000 and 6,000 men. I've heard seen different numbers, so it's a lot. Um, there is, this is a rare mention of demons by any name. In Revelation 9, there's reference to a demon or perhaps even Satan named Abaddon or Apollyon. 
But demons, my point is, demons are always terrified of Jesus. They also seem to have an acute fear of the abyss, not being sent away, not being thrown into the pit. This occurs two or three times. And they seem to be compelled to confess Jesus in his presence. In other exorcisms performed by Jesus in Mark 1 and Luke 4, um, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice. He came out. In Mark 3, unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. So they seem to have to say this when Jesus shows up. And in Acts 16, uh, Paul's ministry, a certain slave girl was possessed with the spirit of divination who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. Paul, being greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out. Then we have the reaction of the demons here in Luke 8, uh, where they go into the swine. There's some speculation. Why do demons want to possess something? And we don't really know the answer to that. But they wanted to do this. Jesus permitted them to go into the swine. It's a very strange and frightening scene. Then there's the reaction of the townspeople to Jesus and his works. First, the herdsmen of the swine go out, they flee, and tell everybody in the city and the country what had happened. This was big news. The townspeople go out to see what happened, and what was their reaction? They were seized with great fear, and they asked Jesus to leave. They begged him to leave. They were afraid. Then we have this beautiful reaction of the demoniac. He's clothed in his right mind. He asked Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus tells him, go back to your own country and tell the good things that God has done for you. Mark says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the region there, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So to wrap up, I want to say that I think I'm convinced there's no such thing as a neutral reaction to Jesus and his works. Demons believe in Jesus. They even confess who he is and tremble in terror of his judgment. Unbelievers fear and beg him to go away. I've seen people get noticeably disturbed and upset, almost like an allergic reaction at the mention of Jesus, depending on what their background and what they're, what they're thinking. Think of your own reaction to Jesus. Say at the moment you were convicted of your need to repent or your need to fully submit to the Lord or some other spiritual uh, point of decision. Even the Apostle Peter, um, remember when Jesus told them to cast down the net and they pulled up all the fish? You remember what Peter said to Jesus? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So I think this is our first natural instinct. Just go away, Lord. We were so mindful of our sinfulness compared to him. I remember not long ago when I was seriously considering my decision about this diaconate, feeling a sort of, I call it spiritual nausea. And by that, I mean the feeling of being severely convicted or challenged. Uh, and having to face a decision. I felt as if I were sort of standing ankle deep in the water and Jesus is out in the water saying, come a little deeper. And I thought, I don't want to go any deeper. And so you're faced with that moment of what are you going to do? And I thought, I know this feeling. I know this feeling very well. Haven't had it in a while. This is the feeling we have and unbelievers have right at the point when they are faced and convicted of their need for Christ and must make a decision. 
all encounters with a risen Christ demand a response. So what should be our proper response to Jesus? Our salvation may not have been quite as dramatic as the demoniac, but we have been delivered from evil all the same. The healed man was told to return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. I see this as sort of a short version of the Great Commission. Think what an evangelist the healed demoniac must have been. He told everybody. They were all marveled. They all marveled, it says. The same could be said of Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons, according to Mark 16 and Luke 8. It was Mary who washed the Lord's feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, we believe it was her, was the first to visit Jesus' tomb, the first to see the risen Lord. She loved much because she was forgiven much. Have we been forgiven much? Of course we have. Remember Father Ethan's sermon a few weeks ago explaining how we obey what we love. That's so powerful. We seek, follow, talk about what we love. If we love, it's easy. Psalm 96 tells us to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations and his wonders among the people. And in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we have our standing orders in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. We can safely assume that all people at all times need to hear about the great works of the Lord. So since proclaiming the good news of our salvation is our calling, our vocation as a church, we should specialize in finding the best ways, new or old, to do this. It's very hard today to know how to reach the world. I struggle with this a lot. There are many things we can do as individuals. There are things we can do as a church body. One very important and growing outreach at Emmanuel is the Alpha Course, which has been growing over the past year. Well, a new one will kick off in September 9th, and Father Ethan will be telling you about that before long. And the elders are now considering other ways in which we as a church might reach out to our community with gospel ministries. If you have ideas for ministry, we need to hear them, but we also need to think hard about what we, are truly, what we truly desire to do and what we're willing to do, to go and tell the great things the Lord has done. So let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. All creation confesses your name. So teach us to proclaim your praises, to declare your glory among the nations, your wonders among the peoples, to proclaim the good news of your salvation from day to day and tell what great things you have done for us. Train and strengthen us to wrestle in this spiritual contest and to resist our adversary steadfast in the faith. And we thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Lord, we see the spiritual warfare all around us every day. We ask that you would look with compassion on those in this church and in our families and among our neighbors who are afflicted, oppressed, tempted, tormented, or deceived by any evil influence. And we ask that you would use us in some way to minister your healing presence to them.